we the people are the ones who gonna have to fight. We used to say, which side are you on? Which side are you on? The truth is, we're in so much debt that the only way out is revolution or war. So now the question is, which side are you on? On, 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 on. Which side are you on, boy? Which side are you on, my daughter? Which side are you on, boy? Which side are you on, my daughter? See, before I draw the line, let me welcome you close to all the folks. Labor's story, still untold and largely missing from textbooks and conventional history, is more than account of strikes, spies, frame-ups of organizing and building unions, of men and women fighting and dying for better lives in a better America. It's more than the grim drama of Big Bill Haywood shooting it out with hired gunmen in the mine wars of the Rockies, or of the Parsons crying from his last breath as he stood on the gallows, let the voice of the people be heard. Fundamentally, labor's story is the story of the American people. On this week's show, the history of one of labor's most well-known songs, Which Side Are You On? From Labor's Untold Stories, a brand new labor history radio show hosted by Marty Horning every Wednesday, 6.30 p.m. CST on River West Radio, WXTW in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The show takes listeners on a journey to the rich history of labor struggles for a better world for all using narratives, songs, and interviews, and we're very pleased to welcome Marty and his show to the growing family of labor history radio shows and podcasts. And on this week's Labor History in Two, the year was 1914. That was the day garment workers gathered in New York City to found the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's the show. I don't ride the fence. I cultivate my strength. Cause if it ain't about power, it don't make sense. I've been down with boogie down since beating peace and brown pride. You are listening to the first episode of Labor's Untold Stories. I'm your host, Marty Horning. And I invite you to join me every Wednesday evening from 6.30 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. We will journey through the rich history of labor struggles for a better world for all. We will use narratives, songs, and interviews to share this vital history with you, the listeners. I'm a proud former A.O. Smith Steelworker, D.A.L.U. 19806, and a retired union educator, M.T.E.A., W.E.A., N.E.A., and T.A.U.W.F.A.F.T. To begin, why labor stories? According to the Bureau of of Labor Standards, in 2020, the percentage of wage and salary workers who were members of unions, the union membership rate, was 10.8%, barely 1 in 10. In 1983, it was double that, and in the late 50s, it was almost double that. I grew up in the shadow of unionized workplaces, including Alice Chalmers, where my dad worked. So did most of my friends. Union stories were passed down to children, and many families participated in union-sponsored activities like picnics, bowling and softball leagues, holiday parties. Now, for many people, unions and their traditions and stories aren't a part of their lives. 
Who will pass on the stories about Gene Debs and Mother Jones? Who will re remind the youth that the eight-hour day and the 40-hour work week were earned with workers' blood and struggle? And who will connect young workers with the struggles of striking John Deere and Kellogg cereal workers? In my small way, in this little, low-powered community radio station, I hope to continue the tradition of those who have preserved and kept alive those stories. Let me share an excerpt from a work that I've made our namesake and which had a very strong influence, influence on me when I was younger. It's called Labor's Untold Story by Herbert Morace and Richard Boyer, originally published in 1955 by the United Electrical Workers Union. Let's hear what they have to say about labor history. Labor's story, still untold and largely missing from textbooks and conventional history, is more than an account of strikes, spies, frame-ups of organizing and building unions, of men and women fighting and dying for better lives in a better America. It's more than the grim drama of Big Bill Haywood shooting it out with hired gunmen in the mine wars of the Rockies, or of the Parsons crying from his last breath as he stood on the gallows, let the voice of the people be heard, or of the sit-down strikers at Flint, whose bravery fanned the flame of CIO sweeping across the land with the speed of a prairie fire. Fundamentally, labor's story is the story of the American people. Trade unionism was born as an effective national movement amid the great convulsions of the Civil War and the fight for Negro freedom. And again, notice this book was originally printed in 1955, hence the language. For labor has never lived in isolation or progressed without allies. <clears throat> always, it has been in the mainstream of American life, always at the very crux of American history. And none more concerned than it has been ever-increasing concentration of American corporate power. Labor's story, by its very nature, is synchronized at every turn with the growth and the development of American monopoly. Its great leap forward into industrial unionism was an answering action to the development of trusts and great industrial empires. And I think we could insert here and its decline, certainly over the last 30 years, <clears throat> took place at the same time as the next wave of major concentration in American capital and its spread to transnational capitalism. Labor's grievances, in fact, the very conditions of its life have been imposed by its great antagonist, that combination of industrial and financial power often known as Wall Street. The mind and actions of William H. Silvis, the iron molder who founded the first effective national labor organization, can scarcely be understood without also an understanding of the genius and the cunning of his contemporary, J.D. Rockefeller, father, father of the modern trust. In the long view of history, the machinations of J.P. Morgan and others, merging banking and industrial capital as they threw together ever larger combinations of corporate power controlled by fewer and fewer men, may have governed the course of American labor more than the plans of Samuel Gompers and others. So it is of all this, then, that labor's untold story consists. It is the story of great gains won and of labor's rank and file, of the sobbing desperation of Mrs. Munley as she shook the gates of Pottsville Prison, where her husband and other Molly Maguires were being hanged as foreign agents because they had formed a trade union.
of the railroad strike of 1877 and how it was broken with the charge of communist conspiracy. It is the story of Eugene V. Debs running for president from a prison cell in his fight for world peace and of the movement for amnesty that grew until it freed him. It tells the great love of Lucy Parsons and of her lonely fight for the life of her framed husband. And its page, on its pages are men and women unknown to history, but at the very heart of the labor movement, distributing leaflets, arranging meetings, collecting dues, and spreading the word and the seed which built the trade union cause. And of course, it tells the stories of millions of immigrants arriving in steerage or across the border on a strange American shore, and of the, the singing wobblies, a union on wheels, the iron wheels of speeding freights, and of the bloody struggles of the unemployed, which were climaxed by the triumph of the CIO and the New Deal. It is a long story, and it's, it's an exciting one. And this, my friends, will be the meat and potatoes, so to speak, of this show. So, as a theme song... I have chosen one of the most recognizable labor songs in our history. And it is a song born of struggle, and it has been sung by strikers, coal miners, public sector workers here on the steps of our capital in Madison. It's called, Which Side Are You On? So let's have a listen, and then we'll hear the story of this song. side are you on that version by the great pete seeger probably the uh person who popularized this song he originally recorded it i think in 1941 but uh yeah let's uh dive in a little bit uh, to uh this song this anthem i should say uh which side are you on was written in 1931 
by activist Florence Reese, the wife of Sam Reese, a union organizer for the United Mine Workers in Harlan County, Kentucky, often referred to over the years as Bloody Harlan. In 1931, the miners and the mine owners in southeastern Kentucky were locked in a bitter and violent strike called the Harlan County War. In an attempt to, imitate the, to intimidate the family of Sam Reese, Sheriff J.H. Blair, who's in the song, and his men, hired by the mining company, illegally entered their home in search of Sam Reese. But Sam had been warned, and he escaped. But Florence and their children, who were left at home, were terrorized by these thugs. According to one telling, that night after the men had gone home, Florence wrote the lyrics to Which Side Are You On on a calendar that hung in their kitchen. Now, there's another version of this uh, creation song that's uh, interesting from uh, folklorist Alan Lomax, who collected the song from Florence Reese in 1937. He said that she wrote the song in 1912 when her father was out on strike and then updated it in 1931 during the Harlan County War strike by the United Workers of the United Mine Workers of America and the National Miners Union. Now, I do have uh, uh, a little brief clip of uh, Florence Reese herself. Let's give this a quick listen to. Come all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? We're starting our good battle. We know we're sure to win because we've got the gun thugs looking very thin. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? If you go to Harlan County, there is no neutral there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Florence Reese, the author of Which Side Are You On? Florence Reese continued to support mine workers in their struggles uh, in Harlan County and across uh, uh, coal country. She was involved in the famous 1973 uh coal miners' strike uh, down in Harlan County, which was uh, commemorated in uh, the great documentary Harlan County, USA, which I highly, highly recommend. Uh, it's a bit dated. I mean, it's 50 years ago, but uh, it, I just watched it again a couple weeks ago, and uh, it's fantastic. And again, that song plays a major role. Uh, Florence and others performed Which Side You're On in a number of times throughout, and can be also heard on the album Coal Mining Women. This song has been covered dozens of times with popular versions by, of course, Pete Seeger, the Almanac Singers, of, of which he was a founding member, Billy Bragg, Annie DeFranco, the Night Watchman, Tom Morello, and, of course, the rockers, Celtic rockers, Dropkick Murphy. I'm going to play a, a, a bit of their version because it is a hoot.
Which side are you on? Dropkick Murphys. So you got uh, run the, sort of the gamut there from uh, uh, Pete Seeger to Florence Reese herself to uh, Dropkick Murphys. And again, this is a song. It's been recorded in uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of times. When I looked up all the different versions of it, it's also been recorded in a bunch of different languages. And why is that? Because it's the soundtrack for decades of labor organizing and union activity, including strikes, picket lines, and marches. And like all good tunes, it has traveled. And it's, again, it's been uh, uh, translated in a bunch of different languages and uh, uh, was been the was sang worldwide. Um, <clears throat> connected to that, um, <clears throat> this past summer, I did a little uh, post-pandemic uh, history music road trip, and I went down to <clears throat> southeastern West Virginia, down uh, coal country, down to Mingo County, which is the uh, home of Matewan, West Virginia, uh, the site of a well-known uh, event in coal mine in, in coal country history, sometimes called the Matewan Massacre. Anyways, <clears throat> this is right across the Tug River from coal country in um, southern and eastern Kentucky. So the folks are uh, very much the same, although you can't really say that to a West Virginian. They are a very proud, proud people. But I went down to <clears throat> Matewan. I'd always been fascinated by the story of uh, what took place there 100 years ago this year, 1921. The coal fields of eastern Kentucky and West Virginia were aflame with struggle for the previous 10 years. I mean, the, the UMWA, the United Mine Workers of America, I believe was founded in 1902, but the attempts to organize the coal fields of eastern Kentucky and southern West Virginia were a tremendous and bloody uh, event, or a series of events. Um, and a little bit on a, in a show in the future, we're going to talk a little bit more about Mother Jones and her role uh, in, the, in uh, these events. But anyways, back to, to, to Matewan. Um, the events that took place in summer of 1920 during a strike by the UMWA to try to get recognition by the coal operators for the uh, coal miners uh, have been going on for years with not a great deal of success. The United Mine Workers of America poured a lot of uh, resources, organizers, money into trying to break the uh, overwhelming power of uh, the captains of, of coal country. And uh, back then, um, there weren't even uh, um, like real towns in a lot of these hollers. There were coal camps. And many times the uh, coal miners um, lived in tents. They were temporary. The, they would uh, open up a new mine. They'd uh, advertise, bring people to, to, to work in it. The they would uh, tap out that particular seam, and then the companies would move on and, and leave the people. And so the UMWA was engaged in this uh, very 
um, sometimes violent uh, struggle to get union recognition. Well, in 1920, in Maitwan, which is in Mingo County, West Virginia, again, um, the struggle there uh, was extremely hot. What's, what was particularly interesting about Maitwan is the local law enforcement, the local police chief, was a guy by the name of Sid Hatfield. Sid was a former coal miner himself, and he came from a mining family. Um, Sid was only in his 20s. Um, the mayor of Maitwan, um, Mr. Testerfield, was also a, uh, he, um, he was a businessman, but uh, he was pro-miner because he saw what side of the bread of the butter uh, his business uh, needed to, to keep. Uh, the coal miners were his customers and their families were his customers. And so they were on the sides of the striking coal miners and the coal operators hired a private detective firm called the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency and they acted as the coal owner's muscle in trying to break the strike and to force the coal miners back to work. Uh, and again, you hard to imagine now in this day and age uh, what living conditions were for coal miners back then, uh, how much they made. They lived in these company towns where they weren't paid in actual money. They were paid in script or in tokens, which of course could only be cashed in at the company store. <clears throat> Some of you may remember the famous uh, Ernie, T uh, Tennessee Ernie Ford song, uh, where he refers to the company store. Well, that's, in fact, what, their houses were owned by the, the co-operators. The stores were open. All the, all the buildings in the building were also owned by the coal operators. So it was a, a pretty daunting situation. But in Maitwan, unlike a lot of other company towns, they actually had a pro-minor, independent uh, local government and uh, law enforcement. And so when the Beldwin Feltz detectives came in to try to evict striking miners from their company-owned um, residences, Sid Hatfield and his best friend and deputy Ed Chambers um, told the Baldwin Feltz detectives that their warrants to evict these uh, weren't valid in Mingo County or in the town of Maitwan, and he threw the uh, Baldwin Feltz detectives out. Well, they weren't going to really have that, so they went back and they got their marching orders from their bosses uh, in the coal companies and decided that if they couldn't buy Sid Hatfield's uh, loyalty and uh, agreement uh, to do what they wanted, uh, that they were going to have to get him out of the way. So Baldwin Feltz sent a team of uh, about a dozen armed deputies, so to speak, on the train in from Bluefields, West Virginia, to come to Maitwan to um, basically uh, throw these miners out and to confront uh, Sid Hatfield. Um, and it's really interesting because the uh, uh, town of Mate Mate Maitwan right now, uh, their biggest tourist attraction is, in fact, what be the event known as the Maitwan Massacre. Sid Hatfield 
and Ed Chambers, along with dozens of other militant armed striking miners, confronted these detectives uh, on the railroad tracks or on the road right next to the railroad tracks in uh, Maitwan. And, and Maitwan is a really, really small town, believe me. Um, and depending on who you believe, um, shots were fired and a full-blown gunfight erupted. Um, nine of the Baldwin Feltz detectives died that day. Two miners died that day, and Mayor Testerman was shot and died the next day. Um, and that was what became known as the Maitwan Massacre. And it's interesting because if you get down there, again, uh, it's not a lot of uh, towns, I think, in America that would celebrate uh, such a bloody event as their um, as, a, as, a, as a tourist attraction and as a way to bring people uh, to come to uh, see Maitwan. But they have developed there a really wonderful West Virginia Mine Wars Museum that is a nonprofit, and it's located in the old bank building, which in, in uh, uh, earlier years was the um, building where the, was the headquarters of the United Mine Workers Union in Maitwan. And it is absolutely worth a visit. It is uh, a, a finely curated and put together uh, museum that uh, shows everything from the kinds of script that uh, these coal miners had to uh, use to the weapons that were used against them, uh, period photographs, um, and so on. So I highly recommend it. Well, <clears throat> the Sid Hatfield... And the miners won that day, but the coal interests weren't going to allow that to happen. So they continued to resist um, the unionizing drive and plotted ways to get back at uh, Sid Hatfield and at Chambers. A local grand jury was um, uh, put together. They were charged with murder along with uh, uh, nine other uh, miners, and they were all acquitted by a local jury. A year later... The coal operators arranged for a warrant to be issued for Sid and Ed's arrest uh, over in Welch, uh, West Virginia, which is in a different county. That that sheriff was un, in the pocket of the coal interests. They called Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers to appear at the courthouse in Welch, West Virginia, in August of 2021, which Sid and Ed showed up, they gave up their guns as per a previous agreement and started walking up the stairs to the courthouse. There at the top of the stairs were Baldwin Feltz detectives and uh, several um, local law enforcement officials. They promptly drew their weapons and shot Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers in cold blood. And we're going to talk a little bit about more that in a little while. So... That's a little backstory about where, which side are you on, came from. So if you're interested in labor history, I highly recommend the Wisconsin Labor History Society, which you can find at www.wisconsinlaborhistory.org. The society keeps the flame alive through its work supporting research and events 
the unstoppable Ken Germanson and many others have built a resource for all who want to explore this vital topic, including a lot of really great Wisconsin labor history. I hope to have Ken or other representative from the society soon as a guest in the future. And as I close, I'd like to give a shout out here to Martin and all the folks who have kept WXRW River West Radio going through thick and thin. COVID and Trump up and Trump apocalypse. And I hope you'll join me next Wednesday at 6:30 PM central standard time. Tell your smart speaker to play WXRW river West radio. You can also find us streaming on the internet at www.riverwestradio.com or on SoundCloud under turbo dog. I'm Rick Smith. And this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1914. That was the day garment workers gathered in New York City to found the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America. It was a revolt against the conservative United Garment Workers Union. Garment workers across the country had complaints against the United Garment Workers Union. The Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America leaders held a simmering resentment over a bad deal made after the 1910 Chicago strike in the men's clothing industry. Then, in 1914, the UGW higher-ups refused to seat New York delegates at the Nashville Convention. Chicago delegates protested and both walked out of the conference. They had had it with the dominance of white, skilled craftsmen in a union whose members were largely immigrant women. Early on, the ACWA emphasized industrial organizing and social unionism. With Sidney Hillman as their first president, the union engaged in many strikes winning the 44-hour workweek in 1919. It provided such benefits to its members as cooperative housing, child daycare, unemployment insurance, and collectively bargained health and life insurance plans. It also established the Amalgamated Bank. By the late 1920s, the union boasted a membership of over 100,000. Having never joined the AFL, it quickly signed up with the new CIO and coordinated its work with the Textile Workers Union of America in 1937. The ACWA continued to organize successfully. In 1963, these unions embarked on what became a 17-year organizing drive and boycott at J.P. Stevens, popularized in the movie Norma Ray. They led other successful campaigns in the 70s, including at Fair Clothing, and championed investigations into brown lung disease. The union has since undergone several mergers and splits and is now known as Workers United. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That'll really help folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Today's music includes Which Side Are You on the remix by Rebel Diaz. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Cal Medivitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, 
Evan Papp, Jessica Pozek, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history. And see you next time. I am the people, not the pig. I repeat after Fred. So please blow my brains out if I ever forget. I'm with the independent thinkers. I'm down with the movers and the shakers and the ex-handy drinkers. The non-smokers, the health advocates, the non-voters.